welcome to this, uh, this event this evening, uh, organized by uh, LSE uh, Ideas. Uh, ideas, for those of you who don't know what it means in the capitalized form, is uh, a center for the study of diplomacy and strategy here at the London School of Economics. We've been running now for about two years. Uh, I'm one of the co-directors, and the other one is Professor Arne Westad, who is in the audience somewhere. We are partners in crime, been running this exciting project from our point of view. And one of the things which makes it so exciting is that we can bring along such wonderful speakers, such as uh, Martin Jakes, uh, this evening to speak to the, to the uncontroversial title, may I say, When China Rules the World. Uh, we don't like to sit on the fence on these issues, so you might as well make these, uh, these things uh, plainer than the truth, or clearer than the truth, as somebody once, once uh, put it. As you know, uh, we uh, experts uh, have been wonderfully good at making predictions over the last 20 years. We didn't predict the end of the Cold War, but bugger me, it happened. <laughs> After the end of the Cold War, we then predicted a multipolar world order. And what did we get? We got unipolarity in 10 years, we were told, of an American, an American, a new American century. When President uh, Bush, the, uh, the less intelligent one, came into office <laughs> in 2000, if you look through his national security uh, predictions for the future, what does he worry about? Rising powers. And what does he get on September 9-11? Well, he doesn't get rising powers. He gets non-state actors acting in ways which uh, he neither anticipated or predicted or maybe should have done. And as the good Queen of England said to an economist here at the LSE, why didn't you predict the financial crisis, dear boy? After all, you're paid enough. So we've got most of the world wrong over the last 20 years. Now, I can remember another prediction made in the late, late 1980s as we were not predicting the end of the Cold War, and that was about, about Asia. And we all made a great prediction, well, some people made a great prediction. Um, the new rising power in Asia would be Japan. You remember? The Rising Sun, some terrible films, some awful books. Um, I've got a whole shelf of awful books, if you want to buy them off me afterwards, uh, which told us that Japan would rule the world, become number one, and all the rest of it. Nobody back then, 20 years ago, as the Cold War was unfolding in Europe and then with the collapse of the USSR a couple of years later, anticipated what we're going to be talking about tonight. Another great failure of prediction, namely <laughs> the emergence and rise of China. And I think that's about as much as I can say now. I'm absolutely delighted to invite along an old friend, colleague Martin Jakes, who is a visiting senior fellow in Ideas. He also is in the Asia Research Centre. He is a writer and a broadcaster. He is writing a book, or he's written a book now on the rise of China. Uh, well, maybe another book. Uh, after the success of this book, he should write two or three more. Um, he's been a visiting professor at Renmin University, Beijing, Aichi University, and many, many other universities in, uh, in, in, in the Asia-Pacific region. He was once, uh, many years ago, in our old days, Martin, editor of Marxism Today, until 1991, and I suppose there's no coincidence the fact that he was no longer editor of Marxism today in 1991, the same year that the USSR collapsed. I don't know if you predicted that one, did you, Martin? Did you get that one right or wrong? I will talk about that later. <laughs> anyway, there we go. <laughs> we can all make mistakes. Anyway, um, Martin, of course, has been uh, a wonderful public intellectual in this debate on China. This particular book of his, When China 
rules the world, the rise of the Middle Kingdom and the end of the Western world has been extraordinarily well received, discussed, debated, criticised as it should be, both on this side of the channel, the other side of the channel, this side of the Atlantic, the other side of the Atlantic, and of course Martin has been promoting his book both in the US, in Europe, in Britain, and of course in China itself, where I'm told that the, the first print run is only 100,000 copies. Uh, a pretty minor print run, I would have thought, for China, Martin. I hope it makes you at least a millionaire. And then you can start subsidizing chairs in ideas. <laughs> However, before you start subsidizing chairs in ideas, I'd like to call upon you to deliver the lecture this evening when China rules the world. It's great to have you here again, and we look forward to what you have to say. Martin Jakes. After an introduction like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> Thank you very much, Mick. Well, uh, actually, um, good evening. Um, some, oh, I need my flicker, have you got my? Yeah. Oh, I've got your flicker. Yeah. Um, some months ago, Mick suggested to me that one thing I might do uh, tonight was to uh, respond to uh, some of the reviews uh, well uh, I'm not going to try and do that in uh, a sort of serious intellectual or conceptual sense uh, but I certainly uh, hope to be able to do um, some of that uh, in the paperback edition uh, which if I can ever get down to doing it is due out uh, later this year but I do think it is interesting to say something about the reviews um, Mick said it's been very widely reviewed and he's right and, but I, I think also the reviews do tell us something actually uh, uh, interesting about uh, attitudes towards China uh, I mean the book was published in the States uh, on the 12th of November uh, it's been uh, really widely reviewed uh, New York Times and Washington Post and Time and all sorts of places um, and one of the one of the things that's really struck me about the American uh, uh, res reviews and the response to the book is its seriousness. Um, is the sense in which virtually every review has got to the point um, and hasn't messed around being distracted by what, what I'll call uh, complaints about China but has taken the proposition of the rise of China and the rise of a different kind of country uh, very seriously. And I think the reason for that is essentially because in the United States uh, as a global power uh, then there is a critical mass of people who think about the big global picture and because it's a global power and it has to sort of run its empire and it has to think about challenges to that empire then it is on a need to know basis not simply on an ideological basis, the response. Um, in, uh, in East Asia, uh, the, the response, I've travelled extensively in East Asia, except uh, in Japan and Korea, and uh, I mean the, the response there uh, is different again. Um, the response there is, well they know it's happening. I mean, you know, for them it is not an hypothesis it's already a process 
that is taking place. And so therefore there's an engagement with it, which is different uh, from the discussion here, for example. Um, and so they want to try and understand that process and they want to try and understand what the future uh, might be like. So, you know, there's been intense interest and debate and argument around the book. And briefly on China, well, you know, I'm I spent one of the most, most spectacular periods, actually, uh, 10 days in, in China, especially in Beijing, more than, much more than Shanghai, where there was just such an extraordinary argument and debate uh, uh, around it um, that um, uh, I, was, I found it absolutely fascinating. Which brings me finally uh, to Britain and Europe, which I think has been in a way the most disappointing. Um, I mean, the, the book has been very widely reviewed in Britain, um, and the reviews varied from being extremely positive, even more you know, excited about it, uh, to being uh, extremely uh, antagonistic towards it, um, and various shades uh, uh, in between. Um, but compared with the United States, for example, or East Asia, I had two strong feelings about the British response to uh, the book. Uh, the first is that we're a long way away, and the phenomenon, it still feels as if it's sort of not quite tangible in a way which is very different from East Asia for example and secondly uh, Britain ain't a global power anymore so there isn't there aren't many people unlike what would have been the situation 50 years ago or 100 years ago uh, when we had an empire or the end of an empire uh, when we had a need to know basis and there aren't many people who need to know and so one of the elements of the characteristics I think of the, of the British response uh, not always because there's been lots of responses that haven't been like that but one of the characteristics is what I'll call being diverted by issues about China which prevent you seeing the big picture you know human rights democracy uh, apocalyptic views about the environment um, you know a very hard feeling very strong feelings about Tibet now none of those things are wrong but we're not you know it's not a question of what you like or what you don't like. It's a question of trying to understand the rise of China and what it is going to be like. It's not a value judgment. It, we need to know. And my book is about trying to understand rather than making a series of strong um, uh, value judgments. And, I mean, in Europe, uh, where it hasn't, it hasn't been translated into any European languages yet, it, it, whereas in Asia it has been translated rapidly into lots of, uh, quite a few languages. But in Europe, I was speaking to a, a German guy who phoned me from Süddeutsche Zeitung and he read the book in English and so on. And I said, what's the German attitude towards China? And he said, well, the German attitude at the moment towards uh, uh, China is that it's only really interested in Germany. Germany is really interested in Germany. It's interested, to the extent it's interested in something more than Germany, it's interested in, as, as it were, the periphery of Germany. And it doesn't think about China. And insofar as it does think about China, it thinks of human rights, democracy, uh, Tibet. Or, to put it another way, he said, why can't China be like us? Um, which, of course, was Will Hutton's position, essentially. And, um, uh, and this, is, this ain't going to get us anywhere. But the problem here you know, is that Europe, this tells us a lot about Europe, including the UK, that Europe does not have a global um, uh, perspective, a global picture, 
and it, it does not have a sense of the future anymore. It does not have a sense of the future. Okay, now, that said, that's, that was for you, really. Yeah. Um, there are two elements to the book. One which has captured probably the most attention because partly because it's bound up with the title, although by and large people are getting beyond the title now and discussing the book, um, uh, which is about the rise of China and the fact that I think it will in time probably replace the United States as the dominant and most influential power in the world. That's one part of the book, and that's the one that's attracted most attention. The other part of the book is to try and understand the nature of China as something which is different from the Western experience and will remain different. And that a China, China today, China in the past, and China in the future, in various ways, will be profoundly different from uh, the experience of, West, of the West. Now, tonight, I think that's more important, actually, to be honest, than the first part of the book. Because I think we can discuss the first part, you know, the first theme of the rise of China and how it's going to change the world and affect the world and so on. But I think more important is to try and understand what a ascendant China might be like. But before I do that, I will say something about the rise of China. But I think, first of all, it needs to be put in the context of um, the... Uh, the world at the moment. You know, the, the age we're living through is not so much, it, I mean, it is most pointedly the rise of China, but it is really the rise of the developing countries. This is, you know, this is a most extraordinary change, which we now already beginning to take for granted, but 10 years ago we wouldn't have done, and 25 years ago we certainly wouldn't have done, and in 1950 it would have been inconceivable that the world, the subject of the world was no longer going to be the West, but was to be, to be those populous countries which had been essentially colonized by the West. And that is why in the book I argue that the most underestimated event of the 20th century is decolonization, is national liberation, because it is that which provided the opportunity for countries like India and China to begin to grow in a totally different way from the virtual stagnation in which they had existed for the previous 100 to 200 years. Now, you know, this is, these, are, these, are, these are only projections. They're only projections. Of course they're only projections. They're, anyone who takes these literally is a fool. But they give us some idea of what the future might be like. A best guess. They might even, by the way, be underestimates. These are prior to the global financial crisis. Um, so I think probably it underestimates Brazil, for example. But anyway, look, 2025, these are GDP figures uh, uh, by, market ex uh, by, uh, by exchange rates. China second in 2025, nearly overtaking the United States. And then India fourth and uh, Brazil uh, ninth for the argument. Brazil will be higher. The real transformation is, of course, is this one, but of course it's much, much more speculative because it's 2050. By the way, this is not simply an extrapolation of the past. It, it built into this is falling uh, uh, growth rates, declining growth rates for China, for example. China's not going to carry on growing at double digit for the next 20, 25 years. Um, and here the picture is extraordinary. Look, Chinese economy almost twice the size of the American economy, the Indian economy 
nearly as big as the American economy, and as interesting, the next one, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, Indonesia, then Japan in uh, uh, eighth place, and only two European countries in the top uh, ten. This represents an extraordinary shift in the centre of economic gravity in the world. But it represents more than that. And one of the problems of the Western discussion so far about the rise of the developing world and the rise in China is somehow the assumption that this is an economic phenomenon. And this is mainly, even exclusively, an economic phenomenon. And the reason people can think like this is because there's an underlying assumption that as these countries modernize as they acquire modernity, that modernity will essentially be a Western modernity, a Western-style modernity. We're all on an escalator, the same escalator. We're all traveling in the same direction. It's just that the West happens to be near the top of the escalator. That's a sort of historical view. Now, I think this is absolutely wrong. I think this is absolutely misconceived. Um, and actually, if we think about the world today, we know this, because there is one great exception of the last 200 years uh, in the, since the beginning of the British Industrial Revolution in terms of an industrializing country which was not Western, and that's Japan. And anyone who knows anything about Japan knows, one, it's extremely modern, and two, it does not, it is not Western. It's not Western in terms of its customs, in terms of its social relationships, in terms of its values, in terms of the way its institutions are structured, in terms of the way its polity works, it is profoundly different. It's a hybrid which incorporates certain elements of Western modernity and many uh, of its own. And with the rise of the Asian tigers and now China, we will see quite clearly and of course then other countries like India, that modernity is not simply a Western modernity. It's, it doesn't come in a singular form. It is not simply a product, as I suppose it's a function of the neoliberal era, of markets and competition and technology. It is also and equally a function of history and of culture. And it is China, the rise of China, which will, I think, demonstrate this extremely uh, clearly. Now, what I want to spend most of my time tonight doing is... Oh, sorry, didn't break it. Nearly did that. Um, what um, I want to spend my time doing is talking about four char fundamental characteristics of China, which are profoundly different from the West and will continue to be profoundly different and will shape China's behavior as a global power and in my view probably the dominant global power. Now the first one is probably most important. <coughs> For the last century China has described itself as a nation state for the last hundred years. Now, anyone who knows anything about Chinese history knows that a uh, hundred years is a pinprick in Chinese history. Uh, this is the Qin Empire. It shouldn't include Taiwan. Uh, 
you know, I never, I never noticed that, but someone pointed it out to me when I was in East Asia. I can't remember which country I was in. So I said, I'll get that. I'll get. I'll make sure that's changed. So, sorry. So, have you got a paint paintbrush? I'll paint it white now. If you like. No, 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 okay. no. Leave Taiwan alone. Um, <laughs> so, so here we here we have the Qin Empire. At the end of the Warring State period, 221 BC, and you can already see that it is beginning to assume the boundaries of the eastern part of China today. And here, I'd just like to say this. I'd like you to think of a, an imaginary line somewhere around here, dividing east and west China, because they are di very different stories. So, the succeeding uh, dynasty was the Han Dynasty still two millennia ago and now you can see the Han Dynasty is not so far short of the present borders of China in other words you know China is on this kind of scale for sure the longest continuing existing polity in the world it isn't a hundred years old it's at least two millennia old and one of the things that uh, uh, one of the implications of this is that the Chinese sense of China or and um, those things which give the Chinese their sense of identity are not functions of the nation-state period, but are functions essentially, overwhelmingly, exclusively, in fact, really, when it comes to the fundamentals, of the civilization-state period. You know, the sense of um, uh, uh, the family and the n very specific nature of the Chinese family. The very, very, as I've come to back to this, the very different relationship between the Chinese state and Chinese society. The Chinese state is a very, very unusual institution. Um, the uh, lots of Chinese customs like ancestral ancestral worship, of course, uh, and the ideographic uh, language, Confucianism. These are all functions of the civilization state period. I like to think of China as a geological structure. The topsoil is a nation state. The geological structure is essentially that of a civilization state. Now this is so different from the Western experience. I mean the United States is completely different because the United States only exists in its modern form with the destruction of all previous existing civilizational society in the United States. But in Europe as well, in Britain, in France, for the most part, in Germany, in Italy and so on, the, no, our sense of identity comes from the nation state period, not from something previously. There may be bits of remnants, but it's nothing, it's completely contrasting to the Chinese experience. So the first point about a civilization state in the context of China is this extraordinary long history. Extraordinary long history. The other point to make is, um, is the diversity of China and the scale of China. These are the, this is the other sort of defining characteristic of China as a civilization state. Worth reminding ourselves, these four provinces between them have a population larger than that of the United States. Each of these provinces, colored green and blue, has a population as large as or larger than that of the UK or France. Even in just this eastern part of China, great socio-economic variations, cultural variations, political variations. We tend to think of China in rather monolithic terms, partly because it's got a communist government, partly because the Chinese have such a strong sense of identity, for example, compared with uh, India, where regional identities are much stronger. But there are great variations across this part of China. 
And of course, there are great variations in living standards. So, and it's not true, and it never has been true in this way, but it's certainly not true now that everything comes from Beijing. Because provincial governments and local governments have a great deal of power, and uh, when it comes to tax raising and government expenditure, central government is responsible only for a relatively small minority uh, of uh, the total. So here you have you know, something which is on a scale uh, which is um, uh, very different uh, from what we've experienced uh, in the West. Now, what does it mean? You might say, okay, okay, I might go along with that argument. I'll give it, I'll give it a go. What does it mean? Well, I want to make two points. I mean, lots of points, but I want to make just two points. First of all, the most important political value in China is unity. This is the first priority. And the reason it's the first priority is because, well, ever since uh, the Warring State period and the victory of the Qin, uh, China began the process of becoming what it is today. And, uh, and so the Chinese view of what they are of who they are, of what China is, is essentially that of this civilization state. In other words, this, the equilibrium state of China is one of unity. But it's darn difficult to achieve because the centrifugal forces in a country as large as this are, are enormous. And Wang Gongwu, the Chinese historian, estimated that roughly half of that period of 2,000 years, China has been in varying forms of disunity. In other words, the threat of disunity is always ever-present in the Chinese mind and especially in the mind of Chinese uh, rulers. Now, this is the absolute opposite to Europe. In fact, the most important difference in Europe and China is not anything to do with governance or democracy or even the timing of the Industrial Revolution. Vital that was because that was one of the reasons why the China had its century of humiliation. The most important difference is that at the same time as China was starting the process of its unification, Europe went in exactly the opposite direction. At the end of the Roman Empire, Europe started to divide into many territories, and today, it's, and today, of course, into many nation states. So the, steady, the equilibrium state of Europe is the division into many nation states, not the European Union, into different... That's where that's what, that the identity of Europe is bound up with a sense of the nation state whereas China is exactly the opposite. So this is a fundamental difference which, which, which uh, expresses itself in lots and lots of, uh, of different ways in China. I mean, if you want to know why Mao Zedong is, to this day, such a popular figure in China, more popular than Deng, Deng Xiaoping, the reason is because Mao's greatest achievement was to put China together again. He restored the unity of the country. He restored the sovereignty of the country. He reconstituted the state, very important institution in China, as an effective body at the heart of Chinese society. That's why Mao is so popular. And that is why, uh, the main reason why 1949 is such a defining event uh, in Chinese uh, history. Okay, first example is of the civilization state is that in practice, the operational meaning. The second uh, 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 
example is I want a question I want to use an example Hong Kong 1997 do you remember what the Chinese constitutional offer was one country two systems now I bet you there was barely anyone in the West or in the UK who believed them that, that believed it meant anything they thought it was window dressing that once China got its filthy maulers on Hong Kong it would go the way as they saw it of the PRC wrong absolutely wrong 12 years later Hong Kong is at least as different in terms of its political and legal system as it was in 1997 so the Chinese meant it the Chinese meant it why, why didn't we believe them well apart from any uh, skepticism or cynicism about the Chinese leadership the reason essentially I think why we didn't believe them is because we think with a nation-state mentality for example a few years earlier fall of the Berlin Wall collapse of East Germany or implosion of East Germany reunification of Germany solely and exclusively on the terms of the Federal Republic of Germany nation-state thinking one nation one system one country one system Civilization state thinking, one country, two systems, one country, many systems. Take the question of Taiwan, which I think probably some kind of solution to the issue of Taiwan lies not so far. A, we can now, we could, we can sort of see a possibility. And it will be, you know, it will be on the terms of the Taiwanese at some point accepting in principle Chinese sovereignty. But in return, um, the, the, the offer will be one country, two systems. But it will be much more flexible, I think, uh, depending on when the Taiwanese do it, uh, than, than Hong Kong. I think that uh, the Taiwanese will be allowed to keep their armed forces. I think the Taiwanese will be allowed to keep their existing electoral system. This, now, this, if you're going to run you know, a country of this scale, of this size, then you have to be able to think in a different way. Because this isn't really, you know, it is a, it is a, it is a country. Is it a country? civilization state is a continent so you have to they so the whole notions of governance and so on are profoundly different from the kind of European style nation state which is which is predominant in uh, especially in Europe uh, and uh, in North uh, America now just imagine if you will uh, in 2015 or oh, I don't know 2060, China is the most important, largest economy in the world, the most uh, influential power in the world, and it is a nation state, but its heartbeat is a civilized, that of a civilization state. I mean, it is actually both a nation state and a civilization state, and there's an interesting tension between the two. But I think as China rises, it will become more comfortable with its own history again. Uh, because, you know, ever since, as Lucian Pai says, you know, um, China uh, was forced to adopt the sort of constraints of the European nation-state system by its own weakness at the end of the 19th century. And China won't be uh, at some point obliged in the same kind of way. I don't mean that as a threat. I mean uh, it, it will be able to, it, it, it will feel freer to express itself uh, as it feels itself to be. So imagine at the heart of a global system you have something which is primarily a civilization state. How will that change the way the world works? How will that change the norms, the values of international governments and the 
the kind of debates and discussions that take place in all sorts of ways, including in terms of notions of uh, the law. Okay, that's the civilization. Now, this is such a base, baseline concept. I'm going to return to it later in two contexts. One is race and the other is the state. Now, before I get to that, though, <coughs> the tributary state system. This is my second characteristic uh, of China, which defines it as very different from the Western experience. As you will all know, until again about 100 years ago, um, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, Indochina and China were part of the tributary state uh, system. Um, it was a, a China-centric system. China was overwhelmingly dominant. You know, if you like a deep inequality, economically and culturally lay at the heart of the system. Um, it was, um, it was a, a sort of culturally symbolic system that uh, rulers paid tribute to the emperor uh, in return for forms of protection, forms of access to the Chinese market and so on. It was, very it was a flexible system. It went through various iterations over time. Um, for Japan, it was always a, a more flexible relationship than that, for example, of the Kore Korean uh, Peninsula. Um, and uh, it lasted at least 2,000 years, if not rather longer. And then, at the end of the 19th century, with the growing enfeeblement of the Qing, the economic enfeeblement of the Qing, of, of the Qing uh, uh, China, uh, it came to an end. With the arrival of European colonialism and Japanese uh, colonialism. So that would appear to be the end of the tributary state system. Now look at this. The chart. Now this chart is very interesting because it's telling us something I think very important. This chart is the proportion of exports from various countries in East Asia going to, taken by the Chinese market over a 12 year period. Now it's quite a short period. Yellow line is 1990, 12 years later, short period, 2002. Now, there are some staggering changes here. Taiwan goes from zero to over 30. In fact, it's closer to 50%. Korea from zero to, I think it's just over 20% now. But even in Southeast Asia, further away, not a Confucian society, uh, you know, there's big changes that have taken place. Malaysia is now more, much more around here. They're all, it's everywhere increasingly. If you've seen the latest figures, the recovery from the, um, the recession. There's some extraordinary changes. Uh, 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 China's absorbing uh, 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 huge uh, uh, exports at the moment, from, uh, increase in exports from these countries. So, what is this telling us? Uh, Japan this year, sorry, last year, 2009, uh, the Chinese market overtook uh, the American market as the most important market for Japan. What is this telling us? What it's telling us is that the East Asian economy is becoming China-centric. It's becoming organized increasingly around China. China is replacing Japan, and in a different way uh, to the situation uh, uh, that previously held. Um, and uh, I think that this process will continue, and it will become uh, a much more advanced form. Um, and it presages uh, the development of a new kind of interstate system in Asia. 
I, you know, if you say until the end of the 19th century it was a tributary state system first half of the 20th century it was a nation st uh, Westphalian stroke colonial system second half of the 20th century it was a sort of Westphalian style system sort of um, uh, I think that what we're seeing now is something where well, in some ways what we're seeing are the restoration of some of the characteristics of the tributary state system because one, remember what I said, one of the underlying characteristics of the tributary state system, preconditions for it, was the overwhelming dominance of China in the region. And that characteristic is once more uh, returning. And it will have political and cultural implications. I mean, you know, do you think seriously that English is always going to be the dominant lingua franca? Well, it might be, but I don't think it will. I don't think it will. I, I think, you know, things rise and fall. And with the decline of the United States, you know, every language hitherto has really required a patron country to make it so important. What's going to happen, I think, in this region, English will stay very important, and now it's overwhelmingly the dominant uh, second, you know, lingua franca in the region. But I think Mandarin is going to become very important in the region, for example. So already, South Korea and Thailand, it's a compulsory language in the schools. In Malaysia, Ministry of Education in August announced in Malaysia that uh, they were considering making Mandarin a compulsory language in Malaysian uh, schools. So, you know, we have an absolutely fascinating process. We could add on, by the way, here, Australia. Uh, never, of course, part of the tributary state system, you will know. Uh, but Australia is also mirroring these developments because what ha is happening inexorably is that Australia is being drawn into the Chinese sphere of economic influence. In some ways, kicking and screaming because it thinks of itself as Western. And historically, of course, it's been a deeply racist society. It remains in many ways. So, you know, how that is going to, how, China, uh, how Australia will cope with this situation, uh, well, this is going to be a very, very interesting story. It's even more advanced process with regard um, to uh, New Zealand. Now, I'm not arguing that what we're going to see is a restoration of the tributary state system. I don't think that will be the case. For, for, for example, I mean, the tributary state system was when that was the known part of the world. Now, this exists in a global context because the patterns of exports and flows and so on, I mean, many of these exports are intermediate or advanced goods in the case of South Korea to China for final uh, assembly and then exported to other markets, notably uh, North America and Europe. So, it's, so it's, it's got to be seen in a broader context. But elements, I think, of the uh, tributary state system um, are uh, being restored. Now, David Kang, a Chinese-American historian, argues, and I think he's got, I, I think I rather agree with him, he, he makes two arguments. First of all, that actually the tributary state mentality never really went away. It, it, it became subterranean. It existed in the second half of the 20th century, just beneath the surface, on the part of the Chinese and on the part of neighbouring countries. It never disappeared. And the reason I'm persuaded by this is that I don't think ideas that have lasted thousands of years go away like that. They, they're, they're still there. They still persist, albeit in new forms and in new contexts and so on. And the other thing is that if you take um, the 1990s, many international relations scholars, correct? You haven't heard it yet. Um, international relations scholars predicted that China, that uh, countries in the region fearing the rise of China would hedge against it by uh, allying themselves more with the United States 
And actually, the interesting thing is this never really happened. It's never really happened. The forecasts were wrong. I mean, apart from Japan under Kazumi, and maybe Taiwan in the sort of DPP phase, that that's over. Um, every other country, including American allies like Singapore, the Philippines, and Thailand, oh, well, and Indonesia, indeed, um, have made it their priority, their first priority, to have a closer relationship with China. Why? Well, they can see which way the wind's blowing. If you live in a region like that with a country as large as that, you know that you need to get on with that country. But there's another reason, and that is, that is part of the genes of the, of the region. That is the way the region has always thought. It's been always a geopolitical reality in the region. That was a fundamental aspect of the um, tributary state system. Now, I want to make one other point here, and that is, you know, when people discuss in the West the rise of the, ch the growing uh, relationship between China and Africa, lazily, be they journalists or academics, think, ah, the new colonialism. This is lazy. This is lazy. I mean, it's not that the colonial experience has got nothing to say about the relationship to China and Africa. It probably has got something to say about it. It has. But we've got to remember that China has never engaged in colonization. The, well, the nearest that China's ever engaged in colonization is here. But I'll come back to that. But China had the, had, China had that possibility in, 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 in the, um, d during the Ming uh, and uh, uh, subsequently of, for example, colonizing Southeast Asia. It never did. Instead, it went the route of the tributary state system. So if I wanted to understand, and I, I find I'm still, I think, the, you know, we're still not doing anything other than flitting across the surface of the question, uh, the relationship between Africa and China, I wouldn't start with co co uh, colonialism. Uh, I would be interested in colonialism, but I'd start with a tributary state experience as a way of trying to understand. Not because I think China and Africa are going to go is going to be a tributary state system but to understand the Chinese thinking the Chinese mentality and here we have and I'm an LSE heart of social science and so on and I think here we have a problem you see the West has been not just economically politically and ideologically for so long 200 years or whatever but it's also been intellectually and it's also assumed, by and large, that the concepts that it's fashioned, based on its own experience, based on its own needs, based on its own history, are relevant to everyone else. Because ultimately it's had a kind of view that you know, every, the rest of the world will follow the West. Now, I think you can see already from my talk the two base concepts I've used. The civilization state and the tributary state system. That you can't understand China like this. You can't understand China like this. So the intellectual and political laziness which has characterized the West. Um, you know, we think we're so cosmopolitan, but we're, as, as Cohen says in his book on his Chinese history, but actually we are really so provincial. We've got to really get out of that mindset. You know, we've never really had to think about elsewhere in a way other than a dominant relationship with it. 
Right, the third question I want to discuss is race. Race? Race is a question which is not normally brought up. Not even in international relations, especially not in international relations. The reason it's not brought up is it's too important. It's too difficult. It's too charged. It's safer to just put it in a box and ignore it. Well, everyone knows that China has a population of 1.3 billion. Something over 90% of that population extraordinarily think of themselves as of the same, of the same race as the Han. Now, when I say extraordinary, it is extraordinary because compared with the other, think of the other most populous countries in the world, India, the United States, Indonesia, Brazil, all of them are obviously highly multiracial and think of themselves like that. Now, you can say, you can say well, okay, China obviously is the result of the Han are a consequence of countless different races. Yeah, that is obviously true. But the important thing is the Chinese don't think like that. They don't think like that. They think they are essentially uh, of uh, one race. Now, why is this? This is a very, very important question if we're going to try and understand China. Um, <coughs> well, there's lots of things I could say, but I mustn't. I can't spend them. Let's just take this part of China, because this, we're not talking about this part of China, we're talking about this part. Okay. Civilization state. Back to the civilization state. You see, this is where the history is so important. The length, the longevity of the history is so important. In two, two, two processes taking place. One over a long period, by a process of conquest, war, conflict, occupation, uh, absorption, adaptation, assimilation, government uh, population uh, resettlements, nothing new to this period, hugely important during the, uh, over many dynasties. Slowly, the differences between the many different peoples that lived in this part of China were slowly closed down in all sorts of ways by both by brutal means and by hegemonic means to the point where these people increasingly regarded themselves as being uh, as being uh, well the things that they had in common were more important than the things that divided them now this is obviously you know if you think of India or the other most populous countries, there's so much more, re including India, much more recent creations. Th this is once again a civilization state characteristic. Now, the second process that's going alongside it, because at the end of the day, race is not a biological concept, it's a cultural construct. And what you have is, you know, a very old civilization, which from very, very early on is, a very, is relatively advanced in global terms. Yeah. The China is the home of first home of sedentary agriculture, along with the Fertile Crescent. So you've got already development of relatively complex society, you've got the develop, early development of uh, ideographic language, a very sophisticated ideographic language, a very sophisticated literary culture, development of early forms of state, no accident that Confucius writing two and a half thousand years ago at the same time of the, of the Greek philosophers was by far at the time the most advanced thinker uh, about uh, government. And, uh, and no accident. You know, one of the fascinating things about China is that two of the dynasties of the, of the last millennia were not uh, Han dynasties. Yuan, Mongols, 
and the uh, Qing Manchus uh, invading from the north. But, especially in the case of the Manchus, they were nativized. They, they, they became, they were Hanized, in effect. So this was the power, if you like, of Chinese culture, the strength of Chinese culture, the relatively advanced nature of Chinese culture. So these two elements, and, and if, if there is, the, the fun, most fundamental calling card of China is not military, it's cultural. They believe, they've got this tremendous sense of cultural uh, self-belief, of cultural confidence, which of course also in its most negative forms uh, expresses itself in cultural superiority and linked implicitly, often explicitly, to a notion of racial superiority as well. So this is the process, if you like, crudely oversimplified, by which modern China was created. Every country has a process of ethnic creation, ethnic construction. Every country. And this is China's process. Uh, the Hanization of China. Now it had one great strength, this process. One great strength. And that was this sense of Chinese identity is really what coheres and makes possible this civilization state. And the fact that it hung together. It had one great weakness. The Han have a very weak conception of cultural difference. They don't really respect cultural difference. Because their whole historical experience has been the way in which other groups are Hanized, in effect. And it's most clearly expressed in this part of China. This part of China, Western China, conquered much later by the Qing from the 17th century onwards, Xinjiang, Tibet, and so on, and the Han essentially, you know, why have the Han got such in it? The bottom line of the riots of the last two years in Tibet and Xinjiang are terrible relations between the Han and the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. And really, uh, 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 by and large, a contempt in many, amongst many Han for uh, these peoples, or, or a feeling that they need to be raised to their level. And so, what worries me most about China as a global power is not, um, you know, democracy and so on. I mean, I'm not saying that's not an important issue. Um, I think it is an important issue, although perhaps in ways that aren't so, that aren't like the norm way that we normally discuss it. But it is this, uh, the, the attitude of the Han and their weak sense of cultural difference in a world which is characterised by cultural uh, difference. So that would be my concern. Um, and, you know, when I say the importance of ethnicity, I'm not just talking about China. You know, if you want to, and it's bound to influence the way China behaves as a global power, think of the United States. Think of its behaviour as a global power. What are the building blocks for trying to understand it? I would suggest they are European settlers, white settlers, destruction of the Indians, role of African slavery, manifest destiny, constitution, stroke, a sense of universal mission and the frontier. Now, I mean, that t I think those take you to the heart of the United States, the construction, historical construction of the United States. And you can see how fundamental ethnicity has been to the construction uh, of uh, modern um, America. Okay, this brings me to my fourth and final point of difference, which is the Chinese state. Now, the relationship between the Chinese state, go back to the civilization state again, you see. The relationship between the Chinese state and Chinese society is, I think, very different from any Western norm. 
or to put, put it in a non-contentious, non-provocative way, as is my wont, um, the Chinese state enjoys more authority, more legitimacy, more respect, more deference than any Western state, even though, in our terms, not a single vote has been cast. Why? I think there are two reasons for this. First of all, the Chinese state enjoys a... Uh, is seen by the Chinese as the embodiment, the custodian, and the guardian of Chinese civilization. That is the crucial role of the Chinese state in the eyes of the Chinese. It is why legitimacy uh, in China lies with the state. The other reason is because for the last thousand years, the Chinese state, in a very different tradition from that of Europe or North America, has had no serious competitors to its authority. I mean, the European state had to fight tooth and nail to establish authority as a secular body against the church, then against sectors of the aristocracy, then against the burghers, then against the merchants, and all of this is codified in law over a long, long historical period. That has not been true in China. There aren't really any... There are no clear boundaries to the power of the Chinese state. So in these two fundamental respects, if we want to understand Chinese state, brackets... And, by the way, the question of democracy. We have to think about the state. We have to think about democracy in a much more fundamental way, i.e. we have to understand the nature uh, of the Chinese state. Now, I think it's constituted in a fundamentally different from the way from the West. Which is better? They're so different. You can't say which is better. They're just different, fundamentally different historical experiences over a long, a very, uh, very long period. Will China, over time, become more open, more accountable, more representative, uh, more democratic? Yeah, probably. I don't know. I, I, I think it will. Yes, I do think it will. But even then, I don't expect... I, maybe it'll have universal suffrage of some kind. Maybe it'll have a multi-party system of some kind. But even then, I don't expect Chinese democracy to work in the same way as Western democracy. You know, we're hubristic about our, our, our democracy. We think every, it's, it, it can be transplanted anywhere, irrespective of the fact that it grew up in very specific conditions. And I th expect that China, even more than Japan, but it's also true of Japan, that legitimacy in the case of Japan lies essentially not in terms of popular sovereignty, but with the state. And this will be more true uh, in the case of China. Okay. So a mix really... Uh, by the way, if you just make, if you just want one example of how elections and suffrage does not produce legitimacy, take the example of the Italian state. <laughs> no, seriously, the, Italian, the Italians have more elections than I've had hot dinners. They are always having bloody elections. Okay? They're always having elections. And they end up with someone who's prime minister who hijacks the state for his own personal interest. Why? It's because the Italians have never believed that the state is the legitimate expression of the, of the entire Italian people. So it is always prey for this. So you cannot just reduce the question of governance and, and what is good to the question of elections and democracy. It's a trite way of thinking. Okay, now I'm going to finish me with just saying this, because four points, okay? Then I promise to stop. Um, back to the rise of China. Firstly, um, 
the global financial crisis already announces the shift in hegemony, in economic hegemony, from the United States to China. Because it is one of the fundamental causes, in my, I think, of the global financial crisis is the growing inability of the United States to underwrite the international economic order that it gave birth to at the end of the Second World War and it has been the chief beneficiary of. So we have already a, an underlying crisis which is going to get more and more severe and we can see all sorts of symptoms of it, which is the decline of American hegemony, therefore the decline of the American international order. And, that, and it is the rise of China um, which is clearly um, the, 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 the um, uh, uh, alternative. Secondly, um, there's a something of a debate about, you see, Eichenberry argues um, that the American international order is sufficiently open, sufficiently inclusive, sufficiently flexible that um, any newcomer can come along and the system will automatically be reformed. Personally, that's a crude word, oversimplification, but personally I doubt it. It's not impossible, but I doubt it. I think that what's going to happen is taking the economic architecture. Sure, the IMF will slowly get reformed. Sure, uh, the World Bank will probably slowly get reformed. But, you know, the IMF is behind the times anyway. Look like the G7 was, and it's been replaced by the G20. So I would expect the IMF sort of, I mean, you know, there was money was stuck in and so on, but nothing's been really done. The IMF has not emerged as a central institution. It's a weakening institution. Um, and if, as I expect to happen, for example, in East Asia, there will be the creation over the next decade of an Asian monetary fund with China at its heart, Japan playing a significant role and so on, the IMF will not any longer be a player in the most important economic region in the world. It's larger than North America and it's larger than Europe. So I think what, what, what World Bank, I mean, World Bank makes... Uh, in terms of loans and aids, uh, uh, is less, less important than China, uh, in Africa already. So I think already, actually, we're witnessing the breakdown of that order and those institutions. Um, uh, and to, to a sort of twin-track or maybe multi-track process, whereby they will, they will be reformed, they'll still be significant, but of declining significance, and alongside it will be new institutions and a new order, with new, which, new institutions which will reflect uh, multipolarity in the first case, first instance, but also the rise of China. Thirdly, I think the decline of the United States is irreversible. You know, in other words, it's not just Bush or it's this president or that president. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I think this is one of those rare historical shifts, occurrences, which we probably don't really understand the reasons for, and in a hundred years' time we'll still be debating what it was about and what caused it and so on. But I think this process is a remorseless process. And finally, I think that China in the new international economic order will be the dominant uh, player, will be the most important country, but it will be more complicated than that. Because, uh, as many have pointed out, you know, India is going to be a serious player, America will remain a player, and so on. But it is China which will be at the heart of it, and therefore to try and understand China in a way that we never, ever tried to understand it is essential if we're, trying to, if we're going to try and understand the kind of world that is beginning to emerge. Thank you.
vicious attack on Signor Berlusconi, but we'll let that go by, <laughs> and the Italian state. Um, let me begin. Uh, I'm going to ask the first question, and then you can all put your hands up. Um, I thought that was great, Martin. Um, I think I agree with most of it. it it's the conclusions that you want to push now, because I'm sitting here, let me just say I'm in a kind of an American realist, sitting on this declining hegemon, the end of the American empire, the end of the American century, and I listen to Martin Jakes and I reach for my gun. Um, or I reach for my sanctions, or I reach for my containment strategies, you know? Um, because really, I mean, I, I don't think you, because you don't deal with that, and that's not what you were doing with tonight. But, you know, bringing in the IR, if I might, I mean, there's, there's a real pessimism, really, about the future of world order, it seems to me, which is very implicit in what you're saying. Now, it may, it may be that you, you, you want to deny that, but it does seem to me there's, it's a pretty pessimistic analysis. And it's, it's pessimistic, it seems to me, both, both conceptually and also in terms of your own specific analysis. It's, it's, firstly, you deal with a lot of history, but if we take history as meaning anything, maybe with some lessons to learn, we know, and it's the oldest, it's the oldest cliche in IR, that when great <coughs> powers rise, Historically, this has been the case at least for 250 years in Europe and elsewhere in the world. When great powers have risen, it has invariably and, and tragically, as we well know, led to wars. Um, you know, the emergence of France as a dominant hegemon led to the Napoleonic gamble for hegemony in Europe and war. Germany in Europe, uh, Japan, and even the origins of the Cold War could in some part be explained in terms of an emerging great power. So, you know, with the implicit, therefore, it's, it's, it's pretty pessimistic stuff, if you like, because, uh, you know, how do we avoid history? How do we avoid the inevitability, uh, you know, if history means anything? And it clearly means a lot to you, so I'd like you to take that one. And the second reason for, for, for pessimism is, is, in a sense, what you're arguing for is a kind of sense of an American Chinese exceptionalism that is different, that it looks very, very difficult to integrate. You, you attack dear old John Eikenberry, a good old friend of mine, well, John, John wants to see a nice, peaceful world order, and it's a liberal world order, yeah. and America tries to integrate China into this peaceful world order. And it, it, you then end up with a stable <coughs> transition. Uh, you don't have all the cost of a transition of a rising power. Now, it seems to me that what you're saying is that China is so different that it won't accept these kind of rules. It may play by them for a while, but it won't stick with them forever. So it seems to me there's a double, there's a double pessimism, and I'd like you to address that one, Martin, yeah. first, and then we can yeah. maybe generalize it to everybody, because I'm sure everybody wants to ask lots and lots of questions. But if you start with that one, yeah. then we move on, yeah? Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, well, uh, it depends um, which, which lens you're looking through, yeah. partly. Um, I regard the rise of China uh, and India um, to be um, the, the best things uh, that have happened to the world mm in the last 200 years. You know, the idea that the world, that, it, that we can be in any way happy with a world run by such a tiny fraction of humanity mm. as represented in the period of European hegemony and American hegemony, uh, and based on you know, a long period of colonization and the domination uh, of the developing world. Um, uh, you know, I, I regard the rise of China in it to be the greatest single act of democratization in the last 200 years. So I, you know, I vote for it. <laughs> um, and so that's, 
so sure. th th that's the, I think that's got to be the okay. first. That's the first. Okay. That, I think that's got to be the baseline on this. Now, yeah, of course, you're absolutely right um, that uh, historically the rise of a new power and the decline of an existing power is a dangerous period. And I buy what you say. I agree with you that this is also potentially an extremely dangerous period. And you could, uh, you could make the argument more strongly than you did. Because, you know, hitherto, um, it was basically, apart from Japan getting a nudge in here and there, essentially countries which shared a lot. China doesn't share the same historical or cultural baggage. Uh, which is potentially a cause for a lot of misunderstanding. So, but I think that there are some things to also be um, encouraged by. I mean, I do think um, that despite many changes of president and many general secretaries and going from Maoism to the reform period, um, the relationship between the United States and China has been you know, in some ways quite remarkably stable um, since the, you know, since the 70s. Um, I mean, we're not talking about the Cold War. We're not talking about what happened in the relationship between the Soviet Union uh, and uh, uh, the United States. So I think that, and, and, and credit is to, due to both uh, for that uh, situation. Great credit uh, is due to both uh, for that uh, situation. Now, of course, it's going to come under, and is coming under, quite new strains, um, and that could fracture the relationship or change the relationship. So I'm not saying that we can simply extrapolate, but at least that's a point of encouragement. We might regard that as already an asset, which hopefully won't be squandered. The other thing is that um, uh, how will China view its rise? How will it conduct itself in its rise? Um, and I think here. Uh, there are two points that I seem to me to be very important. First of all, China's whole emphasis ever since the reform period started has been on the importance of economic growth, escape from poverty, economic uh, uh, modernization and so on, as the singular priority and all else uh, has been regarded as uh, uh, a distraction uh, and anything that might uh, be an obstacle like attitudes in the United States has to be overcome, i.e. having a good relationship with the United States and so on. And so, you know, what China has majored on is its economic rise. And actually, the rise of China, the decline of the United States, will not essentially be a military question. It will not. It is an economic question. It is a, a, an economic question. You know, th that, that's one fundamental difference of the Cold War, uh, with the Cold War. I mean, whatever. Khrushchev and, and so on said, you know, they failed, you know, because, you know, it was just an impossible uh, uh, game to play. Um, and so therefore, you know, both sides ended up in this terrible military, military uh, standoff. Um, this is not true. Okay. The Chinese have not actually, you know, okay, people say, oh, they're going to have an aircraft carrier. Ca carrier. Well, of course they're going to have one. I mean, Italy's got an aircraft carrier, for God's sake. <laughs> Another poor regime. Yeah, another Italian yeah, yeah, problem. Yeah. Yeah. And Britain's got whatever. I, I, I know, I'm not very, so lots of people here know more about that kind of thing than I do. But um, so I think that, uh, and, and China, China, I think plays the long game. I mean, you know, China, with such a huge population, um, with those kind of economic growth rates, uh, sees things 
in a very long term way I mean and while that's happening of course you know every relationship China can say well wait 10 years and what's what the relationship will be more favourable to China than it is now what's the relationship between China and the United States going to be in 10 years time much more favourable to China what's the relationship between China and Japan going to be in 10 years time much more, much more favourable to China what's the relationship between China and Taiwan going to be in 10 years time well the Taiwanese are already paying the price actually but, um, uh, but it will be more, more favourable uh, to China and something else that, so they can play the long game mm. and it's natural to the Chinese to play the long game I mean I won't yeah I will um, you know the old story uh, I don't know whether it's true apocryphal story about Kissinger and um, Zhou Enlai and Frank Kissinger Rush. yeah Kissinger asks uh, 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 Zhou Enlai you know what's your view of the French Revolution and uh, Zhou Enlai says it's too soon to say um, now this is a civilization state mentality so I think that that is also something else that the, Chi the Chinese approach, which is product of their history, their culture and so on, will introduce. So we're not simply dealing with what's gone before. In the, you know, we've got to understand it, it seems to me, in a slightly uh, different way. Also, I mean, <coughs> um, although I've argued very strongly about the differences of China, I don't mean that it hasn't, uh, is not learning uh, very strongly from the West. Of course it is, you know. I mean, it's my, it's, it, it's, it's, Chinese modernity will be a hybrid like Japanese modernity. It will, because actually, everyone who had to make it eventually to modernize had to learn from the West. Otherwise, they were bust. Japan did it very successfully. China made a right pig's ear of it. Uh, and it took a very long time. But at the end of the day, it's not that the Chinese will, uh, I think, simply overthrow the rules. I think that. Uh, it, you know, in some apocalyptic act, I think that that will just simply be a long-term historical process. I don't think the Chinese, present Chinese leadership think in those terms at all. Mm -hmm. But what about th two or three generations down the road, mm -hmm. when the world will look very different? Okay. Um, yeah. Could we go to the gentleman here first? I'm take t and then gentleman here too. Sorry. Yeah, please. I take two at a time, and then uh, anybody upstairs? Yeah, I'm going to take yeah, the lady upstairs. So one, two, and then three. Sorry, it's a gentleman. Sorry, a minute. <laughs> if these new glasses, you know, Vision Express don't work. Yeah, so, <laughs> Professor so, Jack, if if the devil would commission you to be his advocate, to argue against everything you have said in this book and naming all the the causes of possibly interfering with what you are projecting be it social upheaval, some influence from the Russian side or whatever. Anything that would stop it from going the way you have described very convincingly. In other words, what stops the upward rise of yeah, China? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. Gentlemen here. Uh, two, sh two very brief questions. Uh, firstly, thank you for an excellent lecture. I look forward to reading your book. Um, with the fact that Reciprocally, if you have a Han Chinese culture which is non-democratic rising, European culture and European concept of democracy is clearly impotent in the case in, in terms of that threat. What does that say about the rise of an underclass in Europe which directly challenges the concept of democracy being able to help the mass of a population? And furthermore, as somebody, if, just, if you could beg me, indulge my okay. moment. And furthermore, as somebody who previously was the editor of a leading Marxist newspaper, how has the last two decades 
change your perspective of how you were previously now that you watch communism declining in China as much as in other countries? Right. Uh, not too much autobiography, okay. Yeah, sometimes, I, I, sometimes I, that's the best part. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I could talk my life with Tarek Ali. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Up to you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, you mentioned the, the fall of the American uh, order, and yes. would then it mean that we're going to have the fall of the UN system as well? Because uh, as as we know, it was built uh, uh, under the United Nations uh, regime, uh, the the American hegemony, and but the, the Security Council uh, was pretty much a visionary institution, if we may say because they did uh, include China, and, and China does has a, a, a role to play there. So will it fall apart, or does it have a future in a, uh, in a world ruled by China? Okay, and a uh, young woman here, please. Okay. Uh, thanks. Can you hear me? Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, um, economic prosperity and mili uh, militant influence alone are not en enough for China to get to or sustain its um, you know, the ultimate uh, dominant global status. I was wondering if uh, Mr. Shek's believes that China has some sort of a soft power could help the country to get to the point. Because when you look at countries or civilizations like the Greek civilization, Roman Empire, United States, they all have something that's, um, they all represent something that's culturally unique. They all have something, you know, could go beyond their uh, border and um, um, in some way larger than themselves. So do you think China has some, uh, something that could ins perhaps inspire the rest of the world? Okay, they're taking four. So let's, let's try and keep a few minutes on those, Martin. Not too much, because I want to bring in a, yeah. a, a, a final round after this one, if I could. Yeah. Okay. Now? Yeah, go yeah. for it. <coughs> what could stop um, the rise of China? Um, China. China. That's good. China, what can stop the rise of China is China. Uh, I think that is the most likely thing, but probably, of course, in interaction with external developments. I, I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the problem, the great strength of China is its size and its sense of cohesion. Um, and the great weakness of China is its size and diversity. So China goes through periods where, you know, it's relatively uh, together, and other periods, as you know, Wang Gongwu has uh, written about, uh, it's relatively uh, 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 fragmented. Um, and uh, and I, I think, that, you know, one of the reasons why China, I mean, there's a, there's a big historical story here, but one of the reasons why China has never developed, you know, colonization and a maritime empire uh, like European powers did in, in latter-day the United States in a sense uh, is because the China, China running China is uh, a hu hugely consuming occupation and insofar as it expanded and it did have a form of colonization although I think this is different continent expansion is not the same as maritime co colonization it's, you know, there's a very important differences um, China's always seen itself in those terms, you know. So, so it has a very different worldview from the European uh, uh, outlook. But holding it, you know, so it, 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 have, it has periods when it's working very well, and it has periods of great introspection and implosion. And so, what could cause that? Well, I don't. I can't see anything that the moment's going to cause. I don't think this is likely. But let me let's say inequality gets totally out of hand the tensions in uh, Chinese society around this become uh, very profound. 
um, the leadership becomes divided over how to handle it, um, split between different interests representing the social and economic changes uh, in China, uh, into, to a situation where you know it becomes so absorbing and so difficult that it becomes fundamentally distracted by it, um, and it begins to go from what this period, which is the reform period, which is probably in a whole of Chinese history, virtually maybe not whole, one of the periods of you know, the most outward-looking period to increasingly looking inward. Something like that. Um, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, okay, your point. Um, European democracy. Oh, this is a big question. You know, I think I, I, you know, I've been brought up in the tradition of democracy, and you know, I'll fight for it like anyone else in the room who's been brought up with that tradition and so on. Um, but I do think we've become sort of relatively uh, conceited and complacent and uh, hubristic about it, um, and we become unaware of its of its of its problems and its difficulties, uh, and we think it's a kind of uh, cure-all solution. You know, if China was democratic, it would be okay, uh, for example. Maybe it stopped growing like it has. In fact, it would stop. It, it, actually, it would stop growing like it, it has. So I think we've got to have a, a more, you know, we've got to have, so I'm not, so I think we've got to have a more uh, nuanced view about the world. You know, our whole worldview is going to have to change because hitherto our worldview has been a Western Western-centric view uh, of the world. And um, this brings me to my second point, your question to me. How have my views changed? Um, and the reason I told the chair off at this point was because I was, yeah, no, I was done so gently and <laughs> diplomatically. Um, but because someone asked me this question in Beijing and and um, and uh, I realised it was a really <laughs> it was a very interesting question. I mean, my, my the way how how have my views changed over the t last two decades? Well, I I'd stopped believing. I mean, although I was editor of Marxism Today, anyone who read Marx Today knows it was not a believer in the Soviet communism. I mean, we were sort of Gramsci, right? That was uh, in, in our Marxist part of it. We had we were influenced by many things, not just Marxist things, uh, and I was from. From the late 60s, I changed uh, under the impact of various events, like uh, May events in France and Prague Spring and so on. And uh, reading Gramsci was very, very important to me. Um, so when the collapse of the Soviet Union, I mean, I, I didn't know it would collapse in the way that it did, like no one else, virtually no one else did. But I was not dismayed. I mean, because, you know, I hadn't really got any, well, I didn't think of it as the future and I didn't have anything invested personally uh, in it. But you've asked me a question, well, okay, how have my views changed? And I'll tell you how my views have changed. Two things. First of all, Marxism Today was a profoundly Western-centric journal because I didn't understand the rest of the world and I, was, I had no bloody resources and I didn't have any money to travel myself and I had no time. So I couldn't really do much about it, and I was always a victim of my own ideological formation and my own interests. And I only, when 
Marxism Today close, did I, in 1993, a couple of years later, go to East Asia for a holiday? So the first thing is, all, all of the things I've said today, I would not have said in that way at all if I'd been talking two decades ago. I mean, not just the historical changes, but the conceptual way of thinking. Yeah? The conceptual way of thinking. And the second way I, my thinking has changed is because in a very personal thing, but in 1993 I, I met my wife, who was um, uh, Indian-Malaysian. She came to live with me. I loved her to pieces. Um, I learned about my own society in a different way through her eyes, coming with different colored skin. I thought I knew my society and I realized I didn't know my society. Um, coming from a developing country and a former colony. Then we went to live in Hong Kong and she experienced a great deal of Chinese racism and she ultimately died in hospital as a result, partly of negligence caused, caused by. And this was a disaster in my life and it was reason, if you read the acknowledgements, for over five years I did not work on the book. But it made me understand something that as a white person I had never thought of except of in a kind of intellectual, esoteric way, which was race. Um, the, the, the UN. Actually, I think the UN, where's my UN questioner? Yeah. Uh, I think that the UN, you know, has got the best prospects of all, actually, to survive. Because by definition, the UN embraces uh, all nations of the world. Um, and it's the one, you see, it, it is a product of the American uh, uh, order, as it were. Um, but it's also the Americans have always, or for a long time, regarded it to be the most troublesome uh, and the one that it's most ignored, you know, uh, over a long period. So I think that the, 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 the prospects for the UN would remain quite good, I think, rather good, in fact, maybe better. Um, now, this very interesting question. Uh, yeah, about, I'm not going to call it soft power. You started saying soft power, but then you made the question much more interesting. Because I think the problem with nice soft power is it, the idea is it, it's a kind of classification, classificatory idea. Um, I, I think that uh, Gramsci's concept of a gamma is a much richer way of thinking. About it. But I'm not going to use that because you use, I thought the way you discussed it was very interesting. Now, the thing is that. See, I believe that every culture, every people, has its own bit of genius. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone in the world. Every culture has its own originality. Now, sometimes it's expressed more strongly than in other cases. But I think if we start with that assumption, we'll be able to see the world much better than we do now, because we'll stop ignoring so many things that countries and peoples could offer. Now, it so happens that, of course, Chinese civilization over a very long historical period has demonstrated this. Not once, but several times. You know, the Song, uh, the Ming, um, the Tang dynasties, you know, great efflorescent periods in Chinese uh, development. So the idea that some people present, um, you know, um, I was debating with Susan Shirt the day on the radio, and um, in her book, uh, Fragile, Fragile Superpower, Fragile Superpower um, you know, she said, oh, I don't think that China's got much to offer the world. I think this is profoundly mistaken. 
profoundly mistaken. Uh, because we're just trying to think, well, what, what does it offer at the moment? Well, actually, what it will offer is an enormously rich tapestry of ideas, of scholarship, of a literary tradition, of ways of organizing the family, of an educational tradition, of forms of parenting, of state governance. I mean, you know, if you want to understand the idea of state competence, don't look at the West, look at China. You know. So China will, you know, will, will be a rich fount of civilizational wisdom, in my view. Not that we can borrow it, but we will learn from it. We will borrow from it. We can't transplant it. Just, just like beyond the point, it's not possible to transplant Western things. In, well, we, we tried our best to make it happen, but it's very difficult to do it. But I think, yes, of course. I mean, you know, seriously, I mean, if, if you stand back as a Martian and look at the last 400 years of history and think, well, you know, are you seriously arguing that something like the United States, which has no prehistory uh, before the arrival of the Pilgrim Fathers because it was destroyed, um, is you know seriously civilizationally uh, more profound than China? Come on, let's be serious. I'm looking at the time, and I know there's a lot of hands. Um, <coughs> not hand, but hands, which have gone up. But we are really we've run out of time. I'm afraid. Um, no, I'll give him another three questions. All right, uh, who's got the? Okay, the man with the, the very long arm here. <laughs> there you go, the long arm of the law. Okay. A very me. quick question. That's me, yeah. Uh, uh, Mr. Jakes, congratulations on your new Chinese edition of the book. Uh, just a quick one. I think if, if what you are predicting, uh, assuming what you're predicting is true, that China is inevitably going to become the next superpower uh, and looking to expand much more just on the uh, economic, not only on the economic horizon, but also from a social and political perspective. If you were to put yourself in the shoes of, say, David Miliband or Hillary Clinton, do you think that the foreign policies uh, at this moment are correct? And if not, I mean, how, how would you change them? The existing foreign policies? Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. You've got to be David Miliband for a few moments. Uh, the gentleman at the back has got an even longer arm and has had it up for about 20 um, minutes. So. How do you see the economic relationship, the crucial economic relationship between the United States and China panning out uh, particularly, to put it simply, that uh, Chinese uh, saving is, is financing uh, currently uh, American overconsumption. Oh, that's it. Great. Two questions. You are David Miliband. What would you do? And how are you going to save Barack Obama? <laughs> Both impossible questions. <laughs> well, I shouldn't have said anything. Okay, um, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, it is my fault. It, it is, is your fault. It is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I was David Miliband. Uh, no, I don't want to be David Miliband. Come on. <laughs> David, David's a friend of the school, you know. Um, uh, well, if I was uh, you know, thinking about the, the, the way the Foreign Office should do um, I think it's got to make a much bigger effort to think of itself into the world as it's moving, as it's, as it's evolving, you know. Um, it's not just a foreign office problem, it's a media problem as well. You know, how many times do you hear people say the international community when they actually mean the bloody West and nothing else? You know, I mean, it's outrageous. You know, and when it comes to Myanmar, which I prefer to use rather than the word Burma because we're about uh, alone in the world now, in using this term, certainly uh, East Asia says Myanmar. Um, you know, 
it was, well, what are the international community going to do? Well, actually, there were only three, three things that mattered, essentially, well, well, the heart of it, China, India, and ASEAN. So that's, that was the key part of the international community. So, but we, you know, Miliband was actually, <laughs> gave a dreadful interview on, um, what's the world tonight in relationship to that? You know, it was threatening, you know, talking, veiled talk about military, you know, ridiculous, ridiculous. I mean, living in another era. Um, so I think we just have to try much harder to think of ourselves into what the future is going to be like. I'm worried about this, though. I must say I'm worried about this, because my feeling is that Europe ain't even in the game when it comes to this. We don't think like that. Europe is, Europe is not thinking about the future. It's not a player in the future. It's not going to be a player in the future. The way things are. It's so preoccupied by its, with itself over such a long period, still living in, it, in a sense in its history, that it, it, it doesn't understand what's happening. I mean, America does, uh, parts of America certainly understand what is happening from my experience. But Europe worries me. You know, I'm sorry to say this because I'm British, you know, I'm an European. Um, so I haven't answered your question very fully, but uh, there you are. You'll have to settle for that, I'm afraid. Um, oh, thank you for asking me a, such an easy question as the final question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, this is a very, very interesting problem. What is going to happen to the economic relationship between the United States and China? In particular, what are the Chinese going to do about these enormous reserves they hold in US debt? Um, they're in a catch-22 situation. As you know, everyone says this. I mean, if they stop investing their surplus in US debt, the value of the dollar will start to decline, and the value of their reserves will start to decline. Um, and if they start to shift the existing reserves, it, you know, there'll be a collapse in the value of the dollar. So, um, but, you know, there's a, there is a red, there is, there are forms of pressure now on the Chinese government in China, you know, why are we putting so much of our money, you know, hard-earned peasant saving, uh, into U.S. denominated debt, it's a good question, uh, but it's you know it's it, it, it's it's a question that's a result of the way things have gone over the last period. I mean, I I think the Chinese will have to find other ways of storing their reserves uh, in time. I mean, someone was arguing with me last night, or suggesting, not arguing with me, because I was I hadn't thought of it like this, but I thought it was an interesting thought. So I'll share it with you as a way of finishing. But it's not my thought; it's one I heard last night. But actually, what, you know, the, Ch the, the Chinese need, need a new store of value to put their surpluses in over time. And what was it, what this guy was arguing was that commodities would be an important store of value for the Chinese. A, they'd have utility because the Chinese are going to need huge quantities of them. And B, they could also act, uh, certainly their rarer forms, as a store of value. And I thought that was a very interesting proposition. Thank you.